So, you're driving along the M4, and it's foggy. In fact, it's really foggy, and suddenly, out of the swirling soup of confusion, comes a man running down the central reservation. He's frantically waving his arms, and he's shouting. What do you do? I think you've got at least three choices. The first thing is you could, you could ignore him. It was over so quickly, you could say, I might have even imagined it, and you keep on driving. The second thing you could do is slam on your brakes. You can't see that far ahead on the M4 in the fog, so maybe he knows something that you don't. Or what many people actually did when this happened for real on the M4, uh, there was a pileup, 10 people were killed, 25 people were injured. It's a very British response. Anyone got any ideas as to what people actually did? Many. They beeped their horns at him. They gave him a good British telling off with their horns. And we just love to use our, our horns in those ways. Hoping that everything will be all right or being annoyed with someone who tells us that everything isn't all right is the way of a fool. Wisdom on that day on the M4 was to heed the warning and was to slow down. Now today we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. We've done it, I think, in four sections. It's mesmerizing, and it's challenging, and it's inspiring. And this final section is not the first time that Jesus confronts us with our inaction and our kind of compulsion for hypocrisy. But this is how he chooses to end this majestic sermon recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this last section that Hilda read for us follows on from a list in chapter 7 of what you might call binary choices. If you remember, the first one was, will we choose the narrow gate, the difficult path, or will we choose the broad gate and the motorway of death? The second one was, who will we listen to? Will we listen to the true teacher or the false teacher? And Jesus says we must look at the fruit of their lives to tell, not just listen to their words. And then thirdly, is our Christian profession meaningless lip service or is it authentic obedience? Now I wonder what decisions you have made or remade as we have listened to Jesus each week. Now, rather brilliantly, we have a deceptively simple parable to close the Sermon on the Mount. And it has a, a kind of a wide lens look at the most important question, arguably, which is this. How do I do life? Now, what describes the way I am me? Now, of course, there is infinite variety, as you can see just by looking around this morning. But Jesus says, we will ultimately, whatever the variety, fall into two camps. We will have the wise and we will have the fools. And he illustrates this by telling a story. Two people both build a house. 
two people experience a dramatic, epic storm and floods. Two people discover that the storm revealed something fundamentally important about the house that they had built. But it's the differences between them that matter. One was wise, the other was a fool. And this was shown how in their choice of where to build a house, on rock or on sand. Jesus then applies the parable with razor-sharp precision. You are wise if you hear his voice and put his words into practice. You're a fool if you hear his words and you don't put them into practice. Now, it's worth pausing to consider, why would anyone choose to build a house on sand? Or to give the question its full force in this context, why would any, any of us here choose to be a fool in the eyes of Jesus? And I can think of at least three reasons. The first is ignorance. Somebody might say, I've never built a house before, so how was I to know that building on sand was such a bad idea. Or they'd say, this is my first and only life, so how was I to know how important it was not only to hear the words of Jesus, but actually to do something with them, to put them into practice, as it says here. So could be ignorance, could be laziness. Building a house is hard work. It's considerably more work if you have to build on rock even if I know that building on sand carries greater risk. So I might do a calculation and say, well, it's more hard work to build on rock, so I'm going to take the easy way and build it on sand. Building a life founded on the words of Jesus carries with it a hundred challenges and sacrifices, and of course, many more joys. And so, you could make a calculation that it is easier, less work, less commitment, less challenge to cross my fingers and hope that the storm never comes. So it might be ignorance, it might be laziness, or it might be the sense that I am special. Normal rules don't apply to me. I can build a house on the sand, which for other people would be a bad idea because storms and floods don't happen to me, so I'll be okay. I am strong enough, smart enough, resilient enough to get through anything. I don't need the safety nets that other people do. Three compelling reasons to build on the sand. Ignorance, laziness, you're special. Now, it's hard to argue ignorance when you've had four or six months of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Being lazy or thinking that you're better than other people is, of course, the path of a fool, which is what Jesus says. It's important that we recognize that what is primarily in view here is ultimate judgment when we die. Now, this has been a common theme in Matthew 7. In 7 verse 13, Jesus talks about the broad road that leads where? That leads to, leads to destruction. In 7 19, 
Jesus says, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In 723, we hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And now in 727, we have the great crash of the foolish house. Now, truth be told, uh, some of you were brought up singing uh, the old-style children's song about this, uh, you know, about um, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. When I was growing up, the bit that we loved was when the house came crashing down at the end. You know, and the house on the sand went, and we just thought that was the best bit. And I don't think that's what the composer had in mind. Just loved it. And, and you know, if, if you'd asked us in that moment, which is better, we're like, oh, I'd go for the crash. You know, any day, house on staying firm on the rock is, is a tad boring. But the house on the sand going, oh, fantastic. In this world of sin and rebellion, which we are deeply entwined with, nothing will matter more than my choice of foundation. I don't want destruction or fire or Jesus saying, I never knew you. I don't want that for me and I don't want it for you either. Now, to some extent, the tr truth of Jesus' closing parable is also seen in the personal crises that shake our world or expose its, its foundation. I've seen it 100 times. You've seen it 200 times. The unexpected diagnosis or the moral fall or the loss of a treasured job or the failure to be promoted to the place where you think you should be. These things, of course, can reveal. They can expose what is really there beneath the surface when the bravado and the pretty decorations are stripped away. Some of you have been there, and some of you are there right now. If that is your experience, you can use it to your advantage. What did the storm that you lived through reveal about your foundations? Now, what, what wobbled in you when you had that unexpected diagnosis? What in you suddenly was exposed as insubstantial, as lacking strength, as lacking grace? This is a gift to you. That gives you the areas to listen to Jesus more carefully in and to pray into. Your house is up and built now, all of us. So you get to plan with Jesus for some serious underpinning. You dig out the foolish stuff and you pour in the concrete of his word. Now, of course, I don't want destruction or fire for me or for you. But what's really important, much, much, much more important, is that Jesus doesn't want destruction or fire for you either. Like the best hospital consultant, he wants to lay it all out for us. Here, Simon, is what you need to do. This ending uh, to the Sermon on the Mount isn't a threat, but it's a warning. 
And our situation is way better than driving down a foggy M4 and having to make a split-second decision as a random stranger appears out of the shadows waving their arms. Maybe they are a fake. Maybe they're just a troublemaker. But it's not a madman on a foggy M4. It's Jesus who is lovingly warning us. He is utterly trustworthy. We can weigh his words. We can read them in the daylight. We are learning that he knows what he's talking about and he loves us. And as I've read and preached through the Sermon on the Mount, I keep coming back to the same place. I want to be the one who hears your words, Lord Jesus. And I want to be the one who puts them into practice. This is not primarily about self-preservation. It's just that it's such a great way to live. God's holy, courageous, forgiving, generous, wise way. So as we finish, how do we do this? Firstly, we have to know the words of Jesus. We have to know them. We have to know them deeply and intimately. As we've read the Sermon on the Mount together, just three chapters of Jesus in one gospel, I've kept thinking, oh goodness, there's enough here to master perhaps in a lifetime. There's so much that we are given to digest and think through and reflect on and build into. We've got to read and reread this stuff. And my pastoral advice to you would be as follows, that you concentrate on the sections that niggle you or that annoy you. See, some of you fell at the hurdle of week one when you heard, blessed are the poor in spirit. And if we're honest, you are too proud and you are too much admired to even in church admit that there is blessing in being poor in spirit. Some of you tuned out when we got to lust and anger. You think Jesus is just, it's just plain over the top. He's just exaggerating. Things are not as bad as he says they are when it comes to the dangers of anger and lust. He's just, he, he has misread it or like all preachers, he's exaggerated it. You, you just can't conceive of a life where in your own heart you would pay attention to such detail because you're happy with presenting a, a holy exterior that will fill, uh, fool most of the people most of the time. And so you've dismissed all of this. Jesus doesn't actually know what he's talking about. Maybe you think fasting is really about losing weight, or that treasure in heaven played well with Jesus' poor contemporaries, but you've got an expensive house and a nice car, and you go on nice holidays, and it feels pretty much as though you've got good treasure now. What could be better than this? So start with the parts that annoy you and niggle you and get under your skin, because that is where your house needs some serious underpinning. We must read and learn and love the words of Jesus.
The second thing is to use an ancient spiritual practice that I know many of you do. It's often called the examine. It's a discipline of reflection and confession and imploring the vitality of the Holy Spirit to flood the people that we are. Some people do it at the end of a day. Some people do it at the end of a week or the end of a season of life. Where we just very specifically and diligently and deliberately sit down and we say to the Holy Spirit of God, please, you know, you put pen poised in hand, please show me the areas of my heart, my mind, my soul, where I've drifted far from you. And once we've let the Holy Spirit do that, then we let the Holy Spirit lead us in confession. And we pour out our God, to our hearts to God in confession. And then, we don't stay there. Then we say to the Holy Spirit, please bring the character of Jesus, your fruit, bring that into my life. Bring its reality, its love, its beauty, its gentleness, its tenderness. Make that part of me. It's a kind of continuing rebuilding of that house, making sure that our foundations are strong and our foundations are true. So as we finish, as your pastor, I would plead with you that you find 15 whole minutes in your busy lives to reread the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. And as you read it, land on one section that you know you need to put into practice. You've heard it, but you've done nothing about applying it and living it. So just choose one, and then get on with God in applying it, in living out the words of Jesus. If you need to speak and pray with someone else, please do. If you need to come and talk with someone on the team, nothing would give us more pleasure than someone saying, I suck at this. Can you pray uh, that I will suck slightly less? That is the kind of prayer that we adore. Amen.